Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 150. This is our final sermon in our series on the Psalms. We've been working through the Psalms since I'm not sure when, maybe uh, February, maybe. Uh, but this is our final uh, final sermon. Uh, we haven't hit every Psalm, as you know, but we've, we've hit a bunch and hopefully gotten a, a flavor for what the book of Psalms is all about. But we end where the Psalms end with Psalm 150 this morning. Before we read that together, though, let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exhortation uh, to praise you. And Father, we've, we've sung it this morning. We have praised you in our, uh, with our lips, with our words. Uh, Father, we pray that right now as we read through Psalm 150, as we meditate on this text, we pray that you would teach us, teach us further, uh, give us greater understanding as to what it means to praise you. Father, we pray that you would make us into a people who praise you, who praise you with all of our lives, with everything that we do and think and say, but who gather to praise you, gather to exalt you, gather to worship and glorify you, our great God. Guide us in this by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What do you think of when you hear those words, praise the Lord? Maybe you think of a a certain kind of Christian uh, who's always going around saying, praise the Lord. (laughs) Or maybe you think of a certain type of music, praise music. Or maybe you have no idea what to think. Uh, you, You don't really know who this Lord is and you're not really sure what it means to praise him. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This call to praise the Lord is found hundreds of times in Scripture. God calls us to praise Him. And we're going to break that down and ask a few questions about praise. You can see on the back of your bulletin, there's a very sparse, simple outline with a series of questions. So we'll talk about what and where and why and how and who. The what, the why, the what, the where, the why, the how, and the who of praise. So first, what? Can you think of a time when someone saw you do something well, and they pointed out that you did well, and they actually celebrated that fact? Now, we're probably more likely to remember the times that we did well and were overlooked, and nobody noticed, but there are those rare moments Those rare moments uh, when people see it and they acknowledge it and they say, good job, you did well. And and there's something more going on here right, than simply an ego boost. Uh, There's something right about seeing and acknowledging and celebrating the good. 
that, that moment of seeing, acknowledging, and celebrating the good, that is praise. That's the essence even of the, the Hebrew word halal, right? Which, which we all know that word because we know the word hallelujah, right? That means praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means, praise the Lord. To praise is to know and acknowledge and delight in our God. And this ought, really, praise ought to be a normal part of life and a part of everyday life. Uh, Psalm 31, verse 28 says, Of the excellent wife, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. What is he doing? Well, he's knowing and acknowledging and delighting in the glories of his wife. He's praising her. And that's good. Right? Praise is good because it is to see what is good, to, to call it good, and to delight in it as good. To praise is to know and acknowledge and delight. And, it, and it's celebratory. Right? It's not just joy that I, that I have sort of on the inside. Praise is an act of rejoicing in something else. I have to admit, I'm pretty bad, actually, at giving praise to people. And I know I need to get better. I actually bought a book on it called Practicing Affirmation. It's a Christian book. Don't, don't worry. But it's called Practicing Affirmation. But, uh, but I never read it. And then I lent it to someone. Maybe one of you. I have no idea who I lent it to. And so I'm still bad at it. But the very act of praise, even of another person, actually brings us joy. It's almost as if the act of praise allows us to participate in the glory of another in some way. And this is the end for which we were made, to find joy in the glory of another, the glory of God. By seeing it and acknowledging it and celebrating it, to see and name and delight in the goodness of the glory of God. And so the book of Psalms, which includes so many varied responses to God, prayer and lament and thanksgiving and request, it ends in one long sustained exhortation to praise. And this is the end, right? This is the trajectory of all prayer, all lament, all request. Praise to the God who answers our prayers, hears our laments, grants our requests, or doesn't when he knows better. As one commentator put it, this is the only way the Psalter could close. To attempt to say anything final about Yahweh would inevitably be anticlimactic. Everything the previous 149 Psalms have affirmed about Yahweh offers the reasons and the content for this praise. In the end, this is why we were made. This is why God created us and our great response to Him to see and acknowledge and celebrate God. Is there more to it than that? Of course there is. But this is the heartbeat of the purpose for which we were made. To taste and see that the Lord is good. God created in order to make people who could taste of his goodness. Now, I don't want to push this uh, too, too far, and this may seem a bit crass, but it's like when you find something you really love, and it may be a great movie, or it may be a great musician, or maybe a great craft beer. But one of the first things you want to do is share that with others. Hey, hey, try this. Hey, hey, listen to this. Hey, watch this. The greatest thing that God knows and tastes and enjoys is himself. 
And he created in order to share himself with us. That, that we, uh, that, that the way that we enter into that is in part through praise, through delighting, through knowing and acknowledging and celebrating our God. So what is praise? Praise is to know and acknowledge and to celebrate God. Two, where? Where ought we to praise? Now, that may seem like a silly question. Uh, I mean, where not, right? I mean, where should we not know, acknowledge, and celebrate God? Fair enough. Uh, but, but a few things are worth noting. Uh, the first is verse 1. Verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. See, verse 1, right away, it specifies two places in his sanctuary and in his mighty heavens. And, and those could be uh, parallel, as in his sanctuary, meaning his mighty heavens, meaning God's heavenly sanctuary. Or those could be an instance of, of what's called merism, where you, uh, where you use the, the extremes to talk about the whole. Uh, and, and so, like, you know, um, after, the, after the run, I was in pain from head to toe. Right? That might have been a merism I might have used this week. Um, or I looked high and low for my car keys only to realize they were in my hand, right? High and low, head to toe, those are merisms, right? You're talking about the extremes to uh, refer to the whole. And so his sanctuary could refer to the temple, God's holy place on earth. And his mighty heavens then could refer to God's holy place in heaven. And so the idea is, praise God everywhere, from heaven to earth, from his temple on earth to his temple in heaven, but really, whatever the case, it makes sense to praise God in his sanctuary because that's where God is. Uh, the point here is to praise God to his face. Right? Evangelism, of course, is, is important. And when we evangelize, we boast about God to other people. We say, this is who our God is. This is how great our God is. Uh, and while this psalm doesn't exclude that, obviously, but Psalm 150 is an exhortation to praise God to God. To tell him how great he is. To enter into his presence and praise him. It's not, by the way, because God is a, a glory fiend, right? He doesn't need our praise. God isn't needy. Uh, he was, to be sure, perfectly happy without us. Rather, it is as we draw near that we experience his glory. You know, when your wife comes into the room wearing a new dress, that is the right time to say, wow, you look amazing. Because that's when you're moved by her beauty. And so, though we can and should praise God all the time, when is the most important time to praise him? When we come into his presence. Well, when is that? When we come into the temple, right? The holy place, the sanctuary. That's what the text says. But you say, okay, Luke, we don't have a temple in the New Testament, right? There's this little thing that in the New Testament where the temple's been done away with, but we do. And you know this, some of you know this, we, we don't have a building, that's true, but we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what the New Testament teaches, that the church, not the building, but the people are the temple. And that's not just a nice metaphor, right? It's, it's, it's literal. We are the place where the Spirit dwells. We are the holy place. We are the sanctuary. We are the saints, the holy ones. 
which means I'm St. Luke and, and you are, are St. Mark and St. Rashawn and St. Bonnie and St. Scott and all the rest. You are God's holy place, God's sanctuary, God's temple, because God's spirit dwells in you. And so we praise God in his sanctuary as we draw near to him. We draw near to him as we draw near to one another in the church. There is actually a second thing in this text, a clue that that points in this direction. Most instances of the word praise in the Bible, and all but one in this psalm, are plural. That is, the exhortation to praise is plural. This implies that the praise of Yahweh is predominantly a congregational activity. Yes, individuals are to praise him, but the the dominant emphasis in Scripture is, is on not persons, individual persons, but people, collective wholes, praising God. In fact, even when the word is used in the singular, it often still highlights the corporate nature of praise. So sometimes the singular singular entity praising God is a collective, like Psalm 147, which says, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And Jerusalem and Zion, though they're singular nouns, right, they stand for for a plurality of people. So it would be like saying, praise God, O church. And even though church is singular, we know that's not an individualistic thing, right? That's us as the people, as the church, praising God. At other times, the word is is used for an individual declaring his readiness to praise God. But get this, more often than not, it's with other people. So Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Psalm 34, my soul makes its boast or praise in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 35, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Psalm 109, with my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. And what's the point? Praise is a team sport. we, We could all ask We could ask all kinds of questions about this, like, well, why is that? Why does God call us to praise together? Uh, What are the benefits of praising God as a community and not just as an individual? Is there some benefit to me? Is is, is the praise itself somehow better, somehow fuller when we come together? Maybe in the the math of praise, adding people is not a a matter of simple addition, but the increase is exponential, right? That, That your praise of God fuels and increases my praise of God, which in turn fuels and increases your praise of God. But whatever the kind of math problem we might come up with, the point is clear. God calls us to praise him in the midst of the congregation. The primary place of praise is in God's temple, and we are that temple. And so we bring God praise when we gather together. We draw near, and collectively we see and acknowledge and celebrate the glory of our God. So what is praise? It's to to see and acknowledge and celebrate God. Where do we do it? Well, everywhere, of course, but especially as we draw near to him by drawing near to one another in his temple, the church. Why? Why do we praise God? Now, some people might wonder, what's all the fuss about? And there are a couple ways of asking that question. One is, for those who will acknowledge the glory of God but don't see the importance of, of praise, especially corporate praise just seems a bit excessive. And then there are others, uh, those who who don't even see the glory of God in the first place, in which case praise seems pretty silly. It's it's kind of a lot of fuss over nothing. 
I mean, wasteful even. I mean, couldn't people be doing more important things on Sunday morning than getting together to sing a few songs? You could be studying right now, right? Every student in the room knows that. They're like, man, I, I could be studying or, or sleeping in. Okay, you'd be sleeping in. <laughs> but after that, you could be studying. I remember talking to someone once who said, everybody has their thing. Everybody just needs to find their thing and then give themselves over to it, whatever it is. And, and, and she was fine if I wanted to give myself to God's glory, but that wasn't her thing, she said. Her thing, by the way, was video games. She told me video games uh, gave her life meaning. This is not an anti-video game sentiment, by the way, but, but it, it's an anti-giving your life to anything other than God sentiment. Uh, her, her life was full of praise, too. It was full of oohs and ahs when a new game came out. Shouts of awesome and cool and wow. She would surely text friends and say, check out this game. Right? Few lives actually lack praise. It's just a matter of what glory has a hold of our heart. You see, all praise, all praise requires a kind of moral or aesthetic judgment. Remember, praise to praise is to see and to name and to enjoy the good. Sometimes our aesthetic meter is, is broken. Uh, we don't always see the good. We don't always call the good good. We don't always enjoy the good as good. Other things have a hold of our hearts besides the glory and the goodness of God. And others of us see what all the fuss is about. We see God's glory. We acknowledge the importance of praise, and yet our hearts are still unmoved. How do we retune our hearts to the praise of God? How do we do that when our hearts are more tempted to delight in the things of creation rather than the Creator? How do we do that when our hearts are, are moved by money and sex and movies and music, but unmoved by the greatness of God? Verse 2 says this, Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. See, see, we marvel at athletes and music virtuosos, right? Why do we do that? Because of their mighty deeds. We can never do that. If you think of the, the skill, the hard work, the practice, the dedication that went into that. But if we marvel at the skills of men, should we not marvel at the one who made men? Calvin says, if, if, if we would have our minds kindled... Right? If we would have our minds set on fire, then if we would have our minds kindled then to engage in this religious service, praise, let us meditate upon God's power and greatness, which will speedily dispel all such insensibility. Though our minds can never take in this immensity, the mere taste of it will deeply affect us. See, if your heart is unmoved, what is the remedy? Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Behold the works of the Lord. Ask the Spirit to give you eyes to see the glory of what God has done and, and discernment to see the beauty of who God is. Meditate, Calvin says, upon God's person and His work. Set your mind on it until it gets hold of your heart. Now, I think the, the, the Holy Spirit, obviously, is a central part of this process, but there is a kind of mundane equivalent and if you don't like this illustration, just forget about it after I'm done. But um, 
very few people like coffee for the first time when they have it. Normally, people drink coffee for other reasons than the flavor. To start. But over time, you develop a taste, we say. We train our taste buds to see the beauty in the thing. The beauty was there all along, but we just didn't see it at first. We couldn't taste it. But as our taste buds matured, as we meditated upon the glories of coffee, right, over time, we acquired a taste. We began to actually like it. Now, maybe you've never acquired a taste for coffee, and that's okay. I realize there is a difference, too, between personal taste and moral judgment. But I hope you can see the comparison. Maybe you are unmoved by the person and works of God. That's not because God's not glorious. It's because your taste buds have been dulled by sin. To change the analogy up a little bit, it's as if all you've ever eaten is sweet tarts, and as a result, you don't like steak. It's not because there's not something good about the steak. We need the Spirit to develop in us a discerning palate. Now, maybe that analogy goes too far, but you get the point, I hope, right? This happens as we taste and see that the Lord is good. And, of course, the place to start is at the cross. Jesus came to die in our place. He died because, because we pursue other glories, which is his glory, his death for us. We see God's excellent greatness supremely displayed in the cross. There, as we saw last week, justice and mercy meet. There, holiness and grace are found. There we see the greatness of God's love and Jesus' willingness to sacrifice himself for our sins. In the resurrection, we see God's mightiest deed in saving Jesus from death itself. We see God's greatest display of power in raising him from the dead. Jesus' person and work, therefore, engender praise. Because there we see how awesome our God is. And then Jesus goes a step further and he pours out his spirit on us to renew us and to transform us and to conform us to his image to be people who can see and name and taste the good. To be people who can praise God for who he is and all that he has done. That happens because of what Jesus has done. Both because that's where we see God's glory most clearly displayed and because through the work of Jesus we receive his spirit and can begin to have that taste of who God is. So what... Where, why, how. I know what it's like to, to wander into a worship service, half asleep, uh, looking at your phone throughout, mumbling through the songs. Sometimes even I come to church, right, just to, just to get through. And I confess, sometimes I come in ready to go through the motions of praise, but giving no thought to it at all. I, I come to do what's expected of me, not give myself over to the praise of God. But the exhortation of this psalm is to, to give your all, to abandon yourself to the praise of your God. And notice that the comprehensive call in verses 3 to 5, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. And the point is, use, use, use every resource you have to praise the Lord. 
Now, there are, are many different kinds of instruments listed here, instruments that were used on a variety of different occasions in Israel. Some were formal, some were informal. Instruments that were played by a variety of different people throughout the Old Testament, some by priests and some by Levites and some by everyday Israelites. And not only are instruments mentioned, but dance as well. And what's the point? The point is that we praise God, not just with our minds, but with our whole bodies. Part of, the, 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 part of that means just getting our bodies here on Sunday morning. Part of that is, is our sitting and standing. Part of that, as we've seen in other psalms, sometimes means we, we kneel and bow before our Father. Sometimes it might mean lifting up your hands in praise. Sometimes it might mean, Presbyterians though we be, that, that sometimes you might tap your foot <laughs> or move your head to the music. And that's good. <laughs> Calvin put it like this. He said, The psalmist, therefore, in exhorting believers to pour forth all their joy in the praises of God, enumerates one upon another all the musical instruments which were then in use and reminds them that they ought all to be consecrated to the worship of God. Right? Everything they have, every resource they had available. Again, he says, let the reader remember that sundry different kinds are here mentioned, which were in use under the legal economy, the more forcibly to teach the children of God that they cannot apply themselves too diligently to the praises of God. Right? You, you, can't, you can't exert yourself too much. As if he would enjoin them strenuously, Calvin says, to bring to this service all their powers and devote themselves wholly to it. This was to lead men away from those vain and corrupt pleasures to which they are excessively addicted to a holy and profitable joy. Part of praise and, and part of what draws our hearts to it is when we physically give ourselves over to it, our whole selves. How can you wean your heart off the glories of this age and train your heart to taste the goodness of God? Well, engage your body. We can engage our bodies in order to engage ourselves as whole people. You don't wean your heart off the glories of this age and, and train your heart to taste and see that the Lord is good if your actions don't change. It's not simply a mind exercise. Often when I come in to worship service on a Sunday morning, I need to repent of my half-hearted praise. I, I give a little bit to God. I give my leftovers. I give enough. I, give, I don't give my whole self over to joy in Him. I need to give... My all to worship. Yes, in all of life, but also in specific times of praise, whether public or personal. Do I come ready to give my all to God in praise? Do I participate with all my energy? Do I allow my heart to be led by the music, even if it's not my style? See, we, we must praise God with every resource we have available of mind and body, offering it all up to Him. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that our job is done once we walk out the door. God calls us to, to live a life praising Him and offering our whole selves to Him. But, but that begins here. That begins with our minds and hearts seeing and acknowledging the glory of God and our bodies celebrating that with every resource that we have available. So what, where, why, how, and who? Who is called to praise God? Maybe you think, okay, this is great, but th this isn't for me. I'm, I'm not a Christian after all. Or maybe you think this isn't for me. I've never really liked music or public displays of enthusiasm. I'm not really the celebrating type. 
Okay, I hear you. But of course, you know, I have to say, this is for you. And in fact, this is the great end and the great goal of your life. To see and know and to celebrate the glory of God. Verse 6 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What is included in that everything? Well, at the very least, every human being. The psalm doesn't say, let every Christian praise the Lord. Or the psalm doesn't say, let every expressive Christian praise the Lord. The psalm doesn't say, let every extroverted Christian praise the Lord. But everything that has breath. The only real question is, does that include just human beings, or is the psalmist calling all creatures to praise God? But whether it's all creatures or whether it isn't, either way, it includes you. Again, uh, Calvin says, and yet the psalmist has addressed himself in his exhortations to the people who were uh, conversant with the ceremonies under the law. Now he turns to men in general tacitly intimating that a time was coming when the same songs which were then only heard in Judea would resound in every quarter of the globe. And in this prediction, we have been joined in the same symphony with the Jews that we may worship God with constant sacrifices of praise until being gathered into the kingdom of heaven, we sing with elect angels an eternal hallelujah. Right, this, this exhortation here previews, points us forward even to the work of Christ who unites all kinds of people together in himself, that all who have faith in him would take up this exhortation and praise the Lord. Why? Well, again, because this is our great purpose. The goal of the Christian life is not, is not doctrine. The goal of the Christian life is not morality. One commentator put it like this, the, the enthusiasm about noise and worship that dominates this psalm issues the Psalter's closing piece of advice to intellectual and socially active readers of the Psalms. It reminds us that sharp thinking and social function are not the only important things in the world. Indeed, it makes no reference to intelligent content, sincerity of heart, integrity of life, feelings of joy, or commitment of love. It closes with simple enthusiasm. It expresses lyrical self-abandonment and utter yielding of self without vested interest, calculation, desire, or hidden agenda. In other words, right, doctrine and morality are not all that is important to Christianity. Now, I'm all for doctrine and morality. Don't go home saying, Pastor Luke said doctrine and morality are unimportant. That's not what I'm saying. But they're not the goal. They are the means to an end of worship. Again, the same writer says, while Psalm 1, first Psalm in the Psalter, asserts in a decisive way that life under Torah, under the law, under the revelation of God, is the precondition of all these Psalms, Psalm 150 states the outcome of such a life under Torah in unencumbered praise. Thus, the expectation of the Old Testament is not finally obedience, but adoration. This is the goal of all things, the reason for which God created us, that we might enjoy what he enjoys, that we might see his glory, know and acknowledge his glory, delight in and celebrate his glory. In short, that we might praise the Lord. Now let's go to him and let's ask him to give us such hearts that our hearts would be moved, and that our bodies would be engaged to praise him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would draw our hearts to you, that you would give us joy in you, 
that you would engage us by your spirit, that our whole beings would be engaged to praise you, to delight in you, to worship you, to stand in awe of you, to your glory and honor and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.